there's a lot of dirty effort and tedious effort in in, in process management and digitalizing uh, your your input data, which is basically not sexy in a world where you could do AI, right? Or you could look at AI. So you get these POC departments that are just proving concepts that we know work. We, we know this works, but we don't have the data for it. You know, you don't need yeah. to prove. That's why I, I remember people uh, doing POCs on, on RPA. And I was like, in the end, I was like, okay, seriously, this is IT. Of course, you can automate IT. IT is automation. It's automation of data flows at its core. And of course, you can automate it in some way, right? That's not the thing you want proved. You want proof of, can we actually do this on a lot of place in a lot of places should we invest in these licenses and these people to do this or maybe we should not hire five guys to do RPA but five guys to do low code apps or five guys to do our process uh, mapping instead right and you know maybe that's the effort we need to do but no one wants to do that uh, and oh mine the other companies doing robotics let's just make some robotics so we can say we're doing some robotics right that's Welcome to this podcast, Demystifying Innovation by Agile Point. I'm your host, Shajil Suheb. The goal of this podcast is to reveal the best ideas that companies are using to become more agile and innovative in the enterprise world. We talk to the ones who are at the forefront of changing the way work gets done in medium to large companies. We interview world-class thinkers at the cross-section of business and IT. Every episode is packed with inspirations and action items that you can take and implement in your own enterprise environment. Check out the show notes at the bottom. Today, I have Lassie Rindom with me. He is the Chief Digital Officer at Baker Tilly, Denmark. That is part of Baker Tilly International, an accountancy and business advisory network having 126 member firms in 147 countries. It's the 10th largest accounting network in the world by revenue. Though accountancy firms are known to be rather boring for ordinary folk, Lassie has a unique personal style and a way of pointing towards the true north in an argument. For instance, his opinion and experience about the intelligent automation, RPA and digital transformation is different than others. At the end of each year, he makes some predictions about the software technology world a rather amusing way of explaining how things are happening in the tech world, as opposed to how they are being marketed by the technology vendors. Even if you skip the whole podcast, do check out his predictions for 2022 that he has on his LinkedIn profile. I'll read out two predictions that I found really interesting, largely pointing to bigger realities that everyone knows about, but hardly anyone talks about in a way Lassie does. His fifth prediction for 2022 reads, the EU adopts low law as a principle. We were super inspired by the democratization in IT and decided to get a more democratic flavor by introducing the same principles in EU law, says President of the European Commission. The Charter of Fundamental Rights is the first to be rewritten and now only consists of two lines, don't take shit and don't be a prick. Assuming these two operates on top of pre-built component and common frameworks understood by everyone and developed over centuries. Now this is of course a piece of satire that has a tinge of reality underpinning the sarcasm. Another prediction he makes and the one that I really like is RPA gets to scale. Finally, it's time to listen and learn. 
My name is Lasse Rindom. I am uh, the Chief Digital Officer at Begitili Denmark. I uh, used to work uh, a lot in, as an automation consultant, uh, both for uh, implementing solutions at clients uh, and also for teaching, actually uh, doing a very much a citizen developer focused teaching on an RPA tool uh, a couple of years ago. Before I moved to uh, ISS, which is a 500,000 employee uh, worldwide facility management provider, um, where I was the, uh, the technical lead for the global automation setup and basically focused around RPA as well, where we, we did an agreement uh, with, uh, with a, a vendor for maintenance and development and also with Automation Anywhere for, uh, for tool. So we rolled something out big there and we worked on a big global framework for a what you would call decentralized ISS organization where every country um, could choose for themselves uh, to some extent what they wanted to do. And where we sort of had to make, you know, um, it focus on how do we get to scale, but we can't dictate scale. So it, it was very much about, you know, scalability. And that, that's become a key point for me saying always, you know, we, we need to focus on scalability more than scale. How can we move fast uh, with business needs instead of having to push these automation and smart tools down the throat of everyone saying we need to have a lot before we have scale. I think it's not about scale, it's about capability more than that and that's something I've, I've been saying for for a long time uh, so uh, after that I, I joined Baker Tilly Denmark where as the chief digital officer where we are focusing on bringing these uh, smarter tools and smarter ways of working into the SMB space where we primarily operate so I've gone from a, a clear enterprise pitch over the last uh, five years into a, a SMB pitch uh, which is something I, I really wanted to do I wanted to see how can we how could we um, make sure that these smart smart technologies are also leveraged in in a lower in what you call lower tier environment, but and also uh, to some extent based on the assumption that if it if it doesn't work there, then maybe it's just hype, right? <laughs> There's something real, you know, about uh, about dirt and concrete and whatever you're doing, right? You know, it's something it's tangible more than you know. You don't just do tech based on the stock emission, but you do it based on this has to work because I'm paying out of my own pocket. And did you observe that it really works over there as well? So some of it does. Uh, we are doing some things on RPA where we are saying, okay, um, one of my key points is always that you need to make sure you have a maintenance set up for it. Even though it's low code, you need to make sure you're maintaining it because IT, you know, IT breaks um, and RPA breaks because it's built on top. I've, I've talked about that in other parts as well, but so, so I'm making sure that there's a maintenance setup that you can buy into, but really I'm, I'm, um, I think that that uh, the the focus will have to be, and that's something I'm a little bit changing my mindset to. Have to be a lot more on on application level, also on seeing how can we how can we cover our sidepark in a clever way. And I, I think that that's it's more you know focusing application wise, focusing on the data all the time, and then not so much focusing necessarily on how you want to automate it, but you know really discussing what data do we need, how do we want to process it. What do we want to learn from it and gain from the data in the end? And then, you know, you don't have to talk RPA all the time. RPA is very much a last resort. Uh, and that, that's what I've also realized, you know, it's very expensive, even though we've made very attractive price points. I really think so. I've really done my utmost for it. And also, you know, with a scalable setup with uh, foreign uh, low, uh, low cost consultants and everything. So it's, it's still expensive for a lot of these SMB clients, you know. Uh, and I've seen that also in enterprise, right? That some of the costs you're doing for an RPA bot, in the end, you know, with everything, everyone sitting there monitoring it and the software and the servers. And if you really take everything into account, you could just as well have hired a guy. 
And that is what, <laughs> really, and that's what, except if it's really big processes, you know, it's really processing big shit, right? But then you're always saying that, okay, but why are we then doing it still with our pay bots, right? There's something, if you have like billions of documents, you know, why are we not just making everyone give us the data in a different way? <laughs> if it's the same kind of data that can be processed by our peer, it's, it's, a, it's really a question. So for me, it's the question with these things, you know, you had this, uh, you had this, what you could call it, this uh, crippling fear that that was also the case in enterprise, that, that every time you put up a bot, it was something that could have been done with a human being instead. But in the SMB space, where people are paying out of their own pocket and not, as I said, with a stock eviction, basically, they are very much saying that, hey, I'll just hire a student helper to do this instead of buying a bot that will cost me, I don't know, a thousand euros a month, right? It's Sometimes it, it gets to that point, yeah. I get that, true. Okay, so so one thing, like when we were having a chat yesterday, so uh, one thing stood out regarding you, that was that you always talk about what data do we have. Like, so help me, like, uh, partly might be my understanding is different than yours. Definitely yours is more, uh, you know, your hands on. So, so don't people start with a project like, you know, here's what I want to do. I just really need to do this process faster, cheaper, or, you know, uh, they're frustrated with the process and that's where they start. So you talk about data. So help me, uh, you know, understand uh, what do you mean by that? Start with data. To some extent, right? I think that out of the process focus, you know, you had lean and you had your SIPOX and everything where you said, you know, SIPOX is the supplier input process uh, output customer, right? So that's the whole chain, value chain for process. And maybe that's because maybe I'm slightly autistic here, but for me, it's all about data. It's a data flow. And also, if you look at some of these, you know, more um, philosophical, like, um, uh, like what's his, what is his name now? Uh, the one who wrote uh, Sapiens, um, Harari. You've read Harari with Sapiens and Homo Deus. He also talks about, you know, the, the, the development of human society is always around how quickly can we exchange data and generate data. And, and, and to some extent, I just took, you know, say, let's, let's apply those glasses to everything because uh, IT uh, and tech is nothing but data. Business is basically not just about data, but a lot of the things that we can actually automate with these IT tools are about data as well. So if we start to identify our data flows, we can say, where do we get our input? How do we process the data? And what do we want from it in the end? then it sort of becomes a data discussion instead. And I think I, I sort of, you know, went into that way of thinking by by being a consultant for RPA for so long, because it was always, always you know, asking people, uh, so what processes do you have that are manual and high volume? Or what, and also, you know, the worst one, what processes are tedious? What do you hate about your work? And, you know, the, the, the poor employee is sitting there with the boss in the room and they're like, oh, I love my job. I, I have nothing that's tedious. I don't, nothing I hate, you know, I, I love it. Or if, or, or, you know, if they're like, yeah, I hate this process and it could be easily automated, then sometimes you have the happy path that's just telling you, yeah, yeah, everyone's the same. And then when you start automating it, there's just nothing but exceptions. So you can have, you know, the one not saying anything, the one being nothing can be automated because everything I do is, is special. And then you have the one saying that everything can be automated and you know it's not true. So you have these, these, and at the same time, you know, there's also cultural things. If you go to, uh, try not to be too, you know, some countries, they have very strict process maps and they only work according to procedures. Uh, whereas in, in Denmark, at least, uh, I can speak for that. Uh, so I won't mention the other ones that I usually are very open to talk about how I interpret cultures, but 
but I don't think I want to go on record with that. But uh, <laughs> but in Denmark, at least, we, um, we have a tendency to not work according to procedures. Even though we have them written down, we don't follow them. And and if we, we seldom even have them written down. So it's like, what is my process? Do I even have a process? How do I understand my process? It's really difficult, right? And I've seen that also in large organizations where you've been through your your process excellences and lean and you've been spending 10 years. They still have, they have the processes written down, but no one ever reads the SOPs, right? They just do whatever they think makes sense. So this means that asking about the process is actually a very, very difficult thing. You know, asking the process, they don't know what the process is, or they will give you something that you can't use for anything. So what I started doing instead, and here's my, I don't know, my, you know, my goal, <laughs> but actually just saying that, okay, what applications do you open? What do you do when you open your computer? So, okay, I open up this web application, open up this uh, ERP system, I, I go to this site to get these documents. I do, do Okay, why do you do that? Because I have to pick up this data and put it there, and I have to do this and do this calculation, and then I have to make this reporting, send it to my boss, and in my email I get all these things input. You know, there it is, your data flows based on the application landscape, you know, so you look at what do they open, what do they work in, and then you can say, okay, maybe I can make sure that the thing you take from your Outlook, put into your Excel, and then put into this system, web application, maybe we should just automate that specific flow, so not the process, which is called uh, your complete, you know, accounts receivable, something like that, but just, you know, this simple part of your accounts receivable process that I can identify based on what you're actually doing, and it sounds very much like a... I get that a discussion where you're talking about, you know, process mining. So you're talking the process mining thing, uh, which it is to some extent, right? But it, it makes people actually also um, realize it. It's very it's a very easy dialogue. You don't need to invest in a big process mining thing. It's very easy to ask people these things. What are you actually interacting with? And then, you know, that's that's where you have the... That, I did that for RPA, but this is obvious also for, to do for, uh, for low-code apps, right? You just ask... Uh, so, okay, you get this in paper, okay, and you get this in unstructured emails all the time where people write different things, you know, couldn't we standardize that data input a little bit more? So, uh, very much focusing, you know, on the tools in the side park, right? So, the low-code application will be on the I, on the iPod, the the uh, the P will obviously be RPA or data procedures or whatever calculations you need to do. And then the outcome will usually be either putting it into a system or some kind of reporting that will make you know more in the end, right? And make better decisions. Yeah, that's that's really uh, cool because uh, a thing that I picked from your uh, from your discussion is that you know you brought up culture thing and I guess that's that must be different in Germany if I'm not wrong. <laughs> you said Germany, I tried to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, but but it's it's actually uh, you know Lassie, it boils down to actually what's not written out there, and mm. you know because how people like you can bring a, a good process or a good technology or a good solution to me, but if, if if the culture thing does come into play, if I'm not open, if I'm not you know I'm I'm used to of doing things in a certain way, I'll definitely resist. But there are people who are open to it, and you know. Uh, I'm glad you brought this up because these are the un unsaid things kind of, you know. No, but the thing is, you know, if you come with the tech or you come with the process, you come with the tech, you'll have, I think, 80% saying no or being, uh, you know, uh, afraid of it. If you come with the, the process approach, that's what I said, you know, you'll, you'll have either something you're unhappy with or you'll also have a lot of resistance. I think you could have some 50, 60% resistance. In my assumptions, based on a Danish, some bit Nordic approach, right, is that people will be resisting that as well because they don't 
they don't know what you're actually asking for. But if you do the other thing, you know, and say, okay, but you do this, 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 you know, why not? And they'll be like, oh yeah, it's it's easier, you know, because you're actually, to some extent, sitting down. Just uh, it's it's like what you could call facts on the table. And the funny thing about the IT is that so much of our ways of trying to uh, to ask the business is uh, is not based on fact, but based on on we think they want to be asked about processes and people and all these things, right? But uh, but really, they want to be they want to be presented with facts as well, right? And and basically, just ask myself, what is the common fact we have? Well, apps and data—that's the common language, and you can easily talk that language to business as well, because they ha- they they actually work in apps with data. They just don't call it data; they call it something else. Okay, easy for you to translate, right? You know, it's it is a difficult approach as well. If you go on very large scale, you have to buy this this big new build this big new system for I don't know student application things, and you know, then it becomes difficult to ask this kind of question. But it's a good way to always you know keep in mind you have to ask these things. I I, I put in um, a comment on LinkedIn the other day that that one of the one of the funny things about uh, about IT is that it's at its core binary, right? It's like true or false, it's zeros and ones. But every time we implement it, people are asking us, how well can we do this? Will this make sense? And we'll all be, always be like, yes, well, depends. Maybe, I don't know. We're always, we're never binary. IT is never binary when implemented, but it's, it's, it's at its core binary. Yeah. I'm, I'm always amazed, it, it's something different, but I'm always amazed at this. An unexpected error happened, and be like, "What? How? You know, in binary code, can an unexpected error happen? What? I once had a, a computer, a 2005, where when I moved the mouse, it made a sound in the sound blaster. So the speakers, I just moved the mouse and it said, Zzz. I was like, "What? You know? <laughs> but, but so even at the binary level, we have these things, right? But but IT is really it should be something where you can say true or true or false, right? But how do we how do we get a Beyond that, it, it's really difficult, uh, and I think we should, when we discuss it, I think we need to bring the language of IT to the business and finding these uh, common grounds where we actually talk the same language. And application is one of those. Yeah, I remember you talking about like the business should be willing to, you know, think a little bit more like IT, and the IT should be a little more lenient towards, you know, <laughs> yeah. the business. Yeah, but you know, how do you do that? And that was one of the things I, I never just accept, you know, we should be able to blah, blah, and then go on. I, I want to find a way to sort of fix that or bridge that. And that's why, you know, I've said it multiple times now, that the applications are actually common ground. You know, they, they just look at the interface, but you know what's behind it. But then you can identify the, the, the process flows, the data flows. And that's why I say the data is at core of everything. You just have to tell people that what they call input and they don't understand what an input is but that's actually a data to you and everything they do with it when at least in an office job is a data flow so right so it's different if you have uh, different when we go into the world of iot it becomes a little bit more blurry (laughs) because you're suddenly working with real objects that generate data and why do we want to know these things and what is it we want to know about it yeah you start working with things actually (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a completely different and you thing. Never, and you never know, like a thing is a human or a... <laughs> yeah. Okay, Lassie, I, I just want to, uh, you know, go back to uh, to my question. Like, uh, let, let's start with your background, you know, uh, although we dived right into, you know, what data and why data, but let's start with your background because that, that sounded interesting to me. So tell us about your master's in history and how it has served you in your current and past roles. <laughs> 
that is uh, that is the million dollar question, right? People always ask me how come you you're, you're master in history and you're working in, in tech, right? And I I always always go back to the uh, the Chris Rock quote from one of his shows where he says that you're told you can be anything you want, but really you can be what you're good at when they're hiring. So to some extent, that also you know grabbed me, and I, I started working on something, and I was a little bit actually in the beginning a little bit. Uh, distressed about it because I didn't know why I suddenly ended up just working for money and not working for something I wanted to do. I, I felt like that way until, you know, I, I sort of dived into uh, to automation and, and coding that way and also the consultancy side of it, which I really enjoy. So so then it sort of uh, opened up and, you know, when you made your space, you made it, I made it mine. I, I learned to love it, right? And, and I do love it and I love all the people I'm meeting. And I've also been able to, at least when you get to the strategic level, to... Uh, to incorporate some of the things that I I took with me from my master in history. So I'm a pure history and actually a little bit political science in uh, my entire education. So, but but what it means is you know taking a look at 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 the uh, the longer trends. I, I did a very sociologically historical uh, inquiries all the time during my studies. Also my master thesis, which was a comparison of the early modern Ottoman court society and early modern French society and how that affected state. Yeah. And and I'm sure that must have helped you bring, uh, you know, even if you don't talk about it explicitly, but that must have helped you, you know, have a second lens of on things when you, you know, kind of try to do them. I, uh, I'd love to say that, right? Trying to be a little bit humble as well, but I love to say that that's what I actually try to do all the time. I love to say, love to look at, well, where are we coming from and, and how come the last thing we did 10 years ago is not also called, you know, uh, smart, low, low code. Why, as you know, I, I don't have this, uh, I don't feel, um, I don't trust, I don't believe in revolutions. That's the thing that happens to historians. You know, you don't believe in revolutions. You believe a revolution is just something that will give you a big reaction, right, afterwards. So, you know, after actually the French Revolution, it ended up giving France even more autocratic uh, Napoleon afterwards, right? So they were actually better off with the king and with Napoleon. He was like even more autocratic and and went even more to war. It was like crazy. So to some extent, right, you, you always get this, this uh, I don't believe in revolution. It's, it's an incremental development all the time. And that's also what I'm trying to ask in, in IT saying that, okay, uh, the earpiece we had uh, 20 years ago, that was actually the big thing, right? That, that's actually where we may, maybe could say we had a, uh, something that could be called at least an accelerated development uh, where we yeah. got, uh, got data digitized, right? But a lot of companies are still lacking in that area. So why are we talking about AI now when we haven't even fixed the whole digitalization uh, agenda? We still have paper or structured emails, which is basically not data good data. So why are we, we, we need to make sure that we sort of, we had this big idea, this big explosion of digitalization 20 years ago, but it's not done just because of that. So we need to make sure that we, we follow it through, you know, and a revolution is something that takes generations also in IT because we are, we are impacting something. We're not impacting the data. <laughs> We're actually impacting people who use the data. And, yeah, and we have yeah. to remember that when you have something that has big impact, you have to ask yourself, what are you actually impacting? And that's the people. And people tend to be uh, generational. They think generational. They, they, you know, 20 years, then you'll have a change of mind every 20 years, basically. 
because then new people will come in. I also know that some of the things I've met, some of the resistances I've met, they will not be there in 10 years because then you'll have a new generation sitting there as, as lead, uh, uh, leaders in companies and uh, as SMEs and everything who will be thinking differently, would have grown up with something differently. And that will apply to, to, applies to everything we do, right? Everyone, you know, you always heard these 100 years ago, these old people sitting there, also today, being like, oh, the new generation is ruining everything. While really the only thing they were ruining with was, you know, bringing along dem democracy. I, I'm reading a book about Danish history right now uh, before I go to bed, I'm just rereading it. And it is funny, the thing that they were like, oh no, but the king needs to have influence. And, you know, then they died and then the new generation was like, no, hell no, <laughs> right? You know, it's just, uh, there were things that, that we think are, um, troublesome it's not troublesome for the new generation necessarily so that was a little detour right but no no so so i'd, I'd like to pick on this like uh, you said you're reading a book about uh, you know danish history so so uh, i'm sure you haven't finished that yet and uh, so so did you like it like uh, like what's what's the takeaway until now from that and the danish history yeah <laughs> no but i'm just I don't know why, but I'm just I'm, I'm basically rereading the, the democratization period of, Den of Denmark in the 1800s right now. So I'm just rereading that and, and it's going very slow. It's very nice. Let's just before I go to bed, just reading a little bit about the politicians and what they were thinking. It's, but it's not it's not a big thing. It's just uh, I like I like I like to have these uh, parallel views on things. Right. So it's saying, OK, what are they actually thinking? When, when I read what, something historically, I always would say, okay, what if I were there? Would I think the same? And 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 try not to be actually try not to be um, arrogant about it, saying that oh they were stupid, or oh, why were they saying that? Oh, that was just something they said in the old days. But saying like okay, if I were there and and today I could actually sort of resonate that same thing. I I remember one of my history history professors once said to me when I was uh, we talked had a course about witches in the 15th, 1600s with witch hunters, and I said. Ah, oh, but you know, why do they believe they're in witches? Well, I said something stupid. I was I was a young student. And he said, listen, they were witches. You have to understand that. <laughs> These people were witches. And if you don't get that, you won't understand this society. And that sort of, uh, that meant something to me. They made, you know, okay, you have to understand that it's a different worldview in different settings. But that also gets an idea. You have to understand the different worldviews of different people and also the different developments they've been going through. So why are they say saying this? What have they been through over the last 10 years? Why are they resisting your change now? Well, that's because they actually tried some change two years ago that didn't work out well, but put extra pressure on them or someone was laid off. You have to understand the history of, of just individual people, but also organizations and what they've been going through. And also, you know, just adding a little bit of, you know, the, the thing with hype tech is that it has a tendency to say, now we found the holy grail. And then next year, now we found the holy grail. And we keep on going like, no, it's here now. We just got it on Mount Sinai. Ah! You know, everyone's getting all excited and you're like, what? Now? But what about, you know, the thing we had five years ago? No, no one talks about that. It didn't work. But, you know, yeah. there's, there's something like, there's something like that, right, in it. And I always try to just look a bit longer on it. And then also, like we do with them, uh, like uh, we wrote a little bit about it yesterday with, uh, uh, with, with the low code, no code, right? Is that everyone's like, yeah, we can now fix the whole world. But the thing is, you don't want to fix what's already fixed, what you fixed with, with the older, you know, what you could do before. You don't want to fix that with your no code, low code. You're not going to build an ERP system with your low code, no code. Then I wouldn't recommend that, definitely. So what you will be doing with your no-code, low-code today, will be doing the things that were over-complex before, 
So things that were over difficult to do or over time consuming, over costly to do. But that doesn't mean that it will become easy cheap right now. Now it will just be uh, complex, costly, time consuming maybe. You just get rid of the over thing. It will be something that's viable to do, right? And that, that, I think that's important to, to remember that we're not going to rebuild the world with our low-code, no-code tools, the things that actually work. So we're just going to build the things that we couldn't do before, meaning that we're actually building on something that's complicated, complex, or difficult to do. But now it's in within our reach, right? So I'm, I'm just trying to say that we should try to avoid in IT, and this is actually now I'm pulling on every string I have, that, that because I'm also interested in tons of other things, is to say that things that are actually complex, we shouldn't position that as simple. We should just say that it has become viable to do better now, but it still requires effort. If you want big impact, you have big cost, no matter what, on some side. Maybe it will take you five minutes to develop the solution, but you will have tens of thousands of hours of change management afterwards because everyone will be changing every, the way they're working. It, there, is, there is a cost to impact all the time. There's nothing that's easy, and we should not tell people that things that are actually complex are easy all the time. Because then, we, uh, then we're working in what I call the, uh, now I get political in the vein of the, you know, Brexit and Trumpism and, and uh, all of these things, right? Saying that the EU is something you can vote yes or no to. No, it's not. It really isn't. You don't ask people that. You don't ask people yes or no. Just imagine, you know, uh, we, I live in a welfare society. I, I make this point always to people. Okay. Okay, so people voted no uh, to the EU in Britain, right? But yes to Brexit. Yes, no to EU, yes to Brexit. I don't know how you want it. Yeah. So just imagine we ask them, should we have uh, the entire public sector in Denmark and save the money? Yes or no? What would people answer? <laughs> I know a lot of people would say, yes, that's half it. Save the money. Get on with taxes, right? And then, and then you're like, but then you just sort of took all the complexity and just put it into a yes, no question. And that's the same thing with IT. We should not take all the complexity because we know it's complex behind it. We have a, you, maybe you have a low-code tool that can actually do some things, but it cannot do anything without the rest of the data flows, without the rest of, maybe you have to make some gateways to some data. Maybe the data you need to interact with is actually in very complex tables. And you actually somehow know that, but you're still saying, oh, this is, my tool is easy. Yeah, but the entire project, the whole entire thing that you're trying to do it's not easy, it's complex, both because you're, you're dependent on some data and some reporting to some people who need to understand it and you're changing the lives of people, that it, it is complicated at best, complex at worst, right? I think that this, this, this kind of like really, it's a really important point. And uh, I, I love the thing that you mentioned this because it, it never gets talked about. And uh, pre precisely what I was reading once that, you know, this whole like, I'm not talking about the political thing, but the, the way this happens in tech as well, or IT as well, that you pose pretty complex problems as simple problems, and then you get yes or no against them just to get the buy-in or, you know, just to reject something. And then you end up <laughs> with, a, with a, you know, worse off situation. You just end up with people that are even more, you know, scared of doing the next thing, right? I, I wrote a post uh, a month ago, I think, about AI, where, you know, you see all these... Uh, or oh, it's more than a month ago, but you see all these uh, consultancies saying that AI is easy, right? It's easy. You just need, you just need, uh, you know, data scientists. We can help you with that. Data engineer, we can help you with that. And then the tool, and we have it all here, right? Oh, by the way, you also need like historical data that's structured and uh, digital. 
No, that's like you know, that's like you know, the the, the small in 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 little subtext. Yeah, subtext. <laughs> yeah, right. And five years of historical structured digital data. <laughs> you know, and it was like, <laughs> but we don't have that because we didn't digitalize it that way, right? So no one has that. That's a problem that every organization has: master data, data integrity, uh, data what do you call it, taxonomy, all these things, right? That is that is the big problem of every organization you can't you can i don't think you can mention any organization who doesn't have a problem with that so saying that ai is easy you just need the thing you don't have right it's like yeah okay fixing climate change is easier just need a a renewable energy source that will go on forever right then and that doesn't cost anything then i fixed it right and but you know that that's putting it a little bit on the edge right but uh, to some extent, that, that is exactly the point, that we're taking something that we know is complex and we're just posing it as simple because my little part of it, my little, my little 2% of this work is simple, right? But the 98% of the work that the organization has to do to make this work well is definitely not simple. So asking ourselves, what do we have? So that's why I'm always saying that, okay, first of all, we need to see... Is there some data we can digitalize better? Can we make a better ERP, stronger ERP? Can we get some LCAPs to get us some structured data in? Before we start even thinking about anything in artificial intelligence, we really need to fix basis first for so many organizations before we go to that step. Because if you do something AI, people will be expecting more AI and they'll be just disappointed that nothing works, right? Your POCs, don't, don't prove a concept, right? Just prove value all the time. But uh, uh, Leslie, uh, to your point, is there, is there a way like, uh, you know, so, so there might, might be someone taking a counter argument saying, okay, we, said, we just first define the goal, that is that we need to have these, these, these insights and we, did, we need them in real time. And then first we establish the goal or the end state and okay, we'll, you know, as a result of that, we'll fix all of the, the data things as well. Do you hmm. see happening that as well or it's not a viable route? No, but of course you need to know where you want to go, right? You need to have an idea about it. You have to have an assumption about where you want to get to. You need to also have an idea about the concepts, right? But, but I think what, what I'm trying to say is that there's, there's a lot of dirty effort and tedious effort in, in, in process management and digitalizing uh, your, your input data, which is basically not sexy in a world where you could do AI, right? Or you could look at AI. So you get these POC departments that are just proving concepts that we know work. We, we know this works, but we don't have the data for it. You know, you don't need yeah. to prove. That's why I, I remember people uh, doing POCs on, on RPA. And I was like, in the end, I was like, okay, seriously, this is IT. Of course, you can automate IT. IT is automation. It's automation of data flows at its core. And of course, you can automate it in some way, right? That's not the thing you want proved. You want proof of, can we actually do this on a lot of place in a lot of places should we invest in these licenses and these people to do this or maybe we should not hire five guys to do rpa but five guys to do low code apps or five guys to do our process uh, my opinion is that right and you know maybe that's the effort we need to do but no one wants to do that uh, and oh mine the other companies doing robotics let's just make some robotics so we can say we're doing some robotics right yeah no i i get your point i get so let let me move to another thing that like what's the best thing working as a chief digital officer and what's the most annoying of it like you know you, you give us a picture of the extremes like what's the best thing what's the most annoying thing <laughs> well the best thing is being able to talk uh, strategy and talk uh, and talk on a higher level. I, I love that. I love to be able to say, okay, what's the big picture? What do we want to do? Where do we want to go? Why does this matter? How do the tools fit into the different boxes? That's definitely the best thing. 
and uh, you know combined with having a team that you can you know a great team that you can work with great people to inspire you and laugh with you and everything i love that yeah. as well and the the worst thing is definitely all the things that you know with the administrative tasks that are not automated yet that <laughs> 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 even the chief digital officer has right <laughs> that that is by far the worst thing i talked to someone else in the um, in the uh, in the digital space the other day, and he we said that it's funny that that we're both you know we both hate these tedious administrative tasks, and also that we on the internal side have some restrictions on our IT what we want to do because IT is outsourced beyond us, right? So there's someone gatekeeping what we can do. So it's you know <laughs> everyone you know it's like we we used to say in Denmark you know that the uh, I don't know what you how you say it in English that it should be the same in England in English is that the uh, the shoemakers kids they have the worn out shoes right they, they, they yeah <laughs> so to some extent i also heard that one of the biggest uh, biggest you know data data and bi analytics companies in denmark they have terrible bi reporting on their inside on their own work you know their own hours they're delivering they have crappy reporting but the reporting they're mm. building for clients are like top shelf like awesome <laughs> but but ah, that kind of tells us like you know Really, really, like I can't say what we can say about it, but I have seen that happening. You know, companies <laughs> doing cutting-edge work for the clients, but not being able to, you know, implement the same stuff within internally. You know. Yeah, but that's also, you know, when you have an, a client relationship, it's 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 very much based on a a defined transaction usually, and the defined transaction is is easier to uh, to excel at. You know, you're delivering this; it will work. And the client will be happy here. But when you're doing it on an internal side, you always have this. Uh, you don't you don't define the transaction as well. You usually start off with something, and then some other people you you get some stakeholders in from the side and everything. It's a little bit easier when you're paying money out of the house to to sort of structure your stakeholders. And say, yeah, uh, we bought this. Okay, so don't complain. All right, I'll accept it. But on the internal side, there will be this constant nagging. Yeah. Okay, so just for the years, uh, what high tech stuff are you currently working on that you think is really awesome and that has the most amount of business impact? I, I think actually that's not just because uh, because uh, we are talking, but I actually think that low code apps are something that's going to grow a lot over the next couple of years. I, I really, really, I really hope so. It, it's both a hope and also a from a strategic point of view, it just makes so much sense. That that area should grow because there's so much that's not digitalized and structured, and that we need to digitize and structure because everyone wants to do AI. I just hope that they realize it, you know, and we start actually uh, saying, okay, let's let's digitalize everything we're doing. Uh, let's get rid of the the Outlook inbox, right? Uh, let's get rid of that. Let, let's put that into either some some ticket systems or or into a structured data that gets in every inquiry is structured data. Let's let's see how far we can take it. Right, with killing it. So, uh, uh, let's see. I know uh, Baker Tilly is a consulting firm. You know, you know, spread across the world. So, how did you contribute to the? Because doing digitalization in a product firm might be, uh, you know, easier. But how did you contribute to the digitalization of Baker Tilly Denmark internal functions like assurance, like and and for the clients as well. And and your clients are also in the in the services sector. So. How do you how how did you contribute over there? Well, for me, it's it, it, it for auditing. I think, and I can't say it's the same everywhere. But the, the thing is, I've realized is that it's an auditing company, accounting company, Bakertilly at its core, with a, with a digital branch that is growing. 
where we are. Uh, it's always about you know what works for us is something that they they are able to also tell clients about. So I need to have the partners in the auditing accounting division to actually tell the clients what they could do smarter with these things. So it's very much about you know getting the use cases that works. And for me, it has been a lot about you know just structuring a better approach to data management and reporting, uh, getting a little bit out of uh, out of Excel which is, of course, a tool that all accountants and auditors love. And then also um, focusing more on, on when we do something like with an automation RPA that has big impact, we need to you know make sure we have a maintenance plan for it. So that's what we've been constructing. And we've also, while we've been constructing it, we've been um, making sure that there is a... So we've been constructing it so that we can use it on the internal side while also being able to offer it to clients. So getting license agreements that are uh, not dependent on uh, legal entities, but where we can actually be able to use it uh, on clients as well so they don't have to get you know an entire server basis and everything. Uh, and that has been some of the, the core focuses. Also making sure we have scalable services, uh, finding sub-vendors in uh, low-cost countries where we can actually scale our services uh, without having to hire in 50 people initially. So all of these things, um, also getting us on a... In Microsoft route, I think um, that's some of the things we've been I've been discussing is that we are we are one of the the biggest ones in the SMB market where you know you have the big four or five that are always you know focusing on big enterprises and Fortune 500 companies stuff like that. We are focusing on the the SMBs and what we're also one of the biggest ones that we're the tenth largest uh, service provider in, in this space in globally. So we could be we didn't we don't need to be the one that comes with the new small tool. We could actually be the Microsoft partner for these clients. So that's something that I'm working on. I think it's interesting. Yeah. I also think that the, the Microsoft uh, agenda at the moment is, is very interesting because they are, they, they are expanding everything on a, you know, you can basically pay as you go and just click it on. I think that's something that most of the people, when they have just an E3 on O365, M365, something, most people have that. Some don't, I know, but most people, most companies have that. And then, you know, adding power, power apps, power automate, it's just a click. And then you have it have it there. I think that's something that is going to change a lot in at least the SMB market, where they don't have the money to pay big uh, upfront fees for getting started. Right? They don't have to. They don't have the money to pay for a customer success manager, basically. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's well said. That's well done. Okay, so so you talked about the digital arm of Baker Tilly. What's uh, so? What's the digital arm of it? What what does it offer? Well, we we offer uh, consultancy on on your. Uh, uh, ERP systems, where we're focusing a lot on the Microsoft stack with the Business Central. We offer consultants who work on low-code apps, on BI and analytics, and also on automation. So that's you know, that's what I said. You know, we, I'm focusing on on the on the input, the process, and the output. Uh, so the input for low-code apps and applications, and process also applications and automations, and then you have the output, which is I call reporting or data analytics, basically. So Baker Tilly is big and, you know, it's, it, it has a rich history. So how, how does digitalization come into play and how did you push it? Like, uh, have, you, have you developed, uh, you know, some services that are now off, being offered digitally or consumed digitally? Like, what's there? In Baker Tilly International, we have every, every country that is doing digital. Uh, is, well, we're expanding in a lot of countries, but they are doing it with different focuses in a lot of these countries. So 
the US is obviously really big. They have a lot of digital capabilities, and and it's just a different fish, right? Uh, yeah. But but for instance, I'm working with both the Netherlands and Canada on delivering cybersecurity services to my clients, while we are then delivering something on data to to them. So we're sort of using each other. Uh, to expand also our capabilities on a worldwide level, um, so so it's something that we are we're growing and structuring and talking a lot about how we can get even more of this common footing on on the digital services. The the reasoning, strategic reasoning behind it is is actually quite simple. Is that you or you have an auditor, which is something you have to have by law. So it's it's a commodity. Everyone can do it. There's tons of auditing firms. It's it's also sort of you know a, a a, a commodity that is a nuisance to some extent. You know, people on you yeah. know they have to buy it. So it's not yeah. like you're like, hey, I'm so happy, I need to buy my account, my you know, auditor, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. You have to have it, uh, and that's why the the thinking there is just you know we want to be the the auditing firm that delivers more value uh, than just auditing. We want to be able to give them more. That's also why a lot of the firms are expanding on both legal. Yeah, there's tax, there's digital, and there's all sorts of consulting also on yeah. generational changes and all these things, right? So, so uh, we're sort of trying to make it a, a full suite, uh, like 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 um, like especially Deloitte and EY are doing for enterprises, saying how can we cover everything you need to do or think about? How can we become your primary advisor? That's the same thing that we're trying to do on a global level with the SMB market, saying how can we become the one-stop shop for the SMB market. Great. There was a program called SMB Digital in which you were involved. I guess it 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 pays out grants to 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 implement technology. Can you elaborate on that? Like, what's that program, and uh, was there any benefit that you see companies reaping out? Well, that's the Danish uh, the Danish government has. I said the money aside for that, where companies in Denmark uh, with, I don't even know if it's, it's under the EU, I'm not quite sure, but where, where, where companies, SMB companies can actually uh, apply for grants for digitalization. And it's something that's definitely working for a lot of companies, a lot of companies out there in Denmark that are, that are gaining a lot from that. So that's something that I think really has an impact. Um, we also have uh, some clients, a couple of clients, not many yet, but some clients where we have been working in this scheme with them. So um, both on helping them apply, but also helping them implement uh, when they've, they've they've received the grant. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm sure it must. You know, the program can be can be a tool to you know help them get their step uh, their step in the door. You know, I think I know that the last time you had uh, there was an opening in thing in October November. I can't remember the date. But they 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 wrote out afterwards uh, from the grand office that that they um, they had two um, two main uh, what do you call grants one for digital advisory and consulting services and one for implementing a system basically and the implementing a system one was was much larger than the uh, the advisory consulting thing you can get much larger grant there but they, they had openings there afterwards they they hadn't hadn't received enough you know relevant applications for. For implementing, so that also says that you know people want to to uh, to get consultancy advisory services on what they need to do, but then you know having a secure project they know they want to implement that takes time. Um, it just takes some time. It also also strain on 
Uh, we see now also in January here that that the companies we talked to last year they were talking, 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 right? But then they put it in their budget for next year, and now things are happening. So it always goes on these yearly things. Now you you'll see the the fruits of what we did last year will come now, and then next budget, and then it goes on like that, right? But I think that for SMB market, getting access to advisory services, consultancy services that are independent and that's a key point with uh, with this SP digital is that you're not allowed to sort of recommend them to use your services afterwards that's not part of it you have to be um what do you call it um, independent completely independent when you when you advise them right so uh, and i think getting access to that is something of course you know you can, it's difficult to be completely neutral how are you even completely neutral you know i, I don't know every tool in the world every vendor in the world but but getting getting access to that for for SMBs is really really important because it it, it can seem uh, in a world where you if you just tap into it go to any kind of conference you'll hear about AI and you'll be like what and you'll hear about uh, NLP and everything and uh, and and even low code apps and you'll be like why do I need it you know the problem with low code apps is that whenever I show people they're like yeah well, that looks cool I don't know where to use it because they it's so difficult to get an idea about where to use it so. You can be talking. We had a a, a conference or a seminar called Digitilly. Uh, uh-huh. Great name, right? I made up the. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I I had to. Uh, it was actually just a working title, and I ended up being just like, okay, let's call it Digitilly. It's a good name. No, no, that's but, wonderful. <laughs> where where we um, where we had the um, where I talked to clients afterwards about their experiences with our Digitilly, and I had uh, a lot of people saying it was great. Obviously, uh, it was a great event, but. <laughs> Naturally, but then we also had someone saying that okay, it was a little bit too high flying for me. It was uh, I need something concrete. I needed I want to hear just what should I do now? What's the product? Where's your product for this and this and this? Especially on something like we had a, 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 um, a someone talk about cybersecurity on a high level, and people were like, how what do I need to do on a you know direct concrete level? All right, so I was like, okay, I get that, and I will work on that. And then I called someone else, and and then started saying that. Listen, I think it, there was too much product in it. I wanted something on a higher level. I wanted something, <laughs> you know. So, so it, it's it's really difficult to figure out what what is it that, that they, they you know someone wanted on a higher level inspiration. Someone wanted concrete products, action points, and it's always difficult to find you know the the exact sweet spot. And that's also the difficulty when you go to these seminars, these conferences, and you're a small SMB guy. You, you know you know about what you work with. You know about uh, producing this kind of plastic or being having this big uh, or your masonry shop or something like that, right? But 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 now you're sitting there listening to people that are either too concrete about things you don't know. You need to buy this specific product for this and this and this. But what is this? What are you even talking about? Pen testing? What's that? And 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 and, and if they're talking. On a too high level on some of the things, you'll always be like lost on it. So it's always about if I go concrete on ERPs, they'll probably be like, okay, we get that. We know that. We worked in our financial system, you know, ERP systems. We worked in those. Uh, but if I go concrete on cybersecurity, I'll lose a lot of them being like, I have no freaking clue what he's talking about, right? So it, it's really difficult to, uh, in this space, to, to find out, you know, in, in bigger companies, you might, uh, when you go to, uh, to, to, to large enterprises, you'll be able to meet up with an enterprise architect, or at least a CIO, right? And they will know what you're talking about. They'll understand the terms you're using, 
it'll be a much different discussion. But if you go to an SMB market where you don't, you know, they don't, sometimes they have an outsourced IT department. Sometimes they don't even have an IT department because they just bought some licenses online. Sometimes they have an IT director. Sometimes they have an enterprise architect, but that's only like the big ones, especially in Denmark, where SMBs are maybe smaller than in the US. So it's a really different pitch to each of those. And that's why I think the independent advisory that that, that the SMB Digital is offering is actually interesting because then you get, you get, you get there and you'd actually, you talk, to them on their ground, on their turf, you know, and, and you sort of break down what's interesting for you in this. And that's something that is definitely needed in the market. It's really difficult to to find for them to find their way in it because they, they just don't have the language. It's a language thing, right? And my wife is a teacher and uh, and she saw she showed me something called the bridge model uh, once we discussed it, which is about, uh, you know, you have to first listen to the child, use their language, then you add a little bit of your not your language as a teacher and then in the end you uh, cross the bridge sort of like it's, it's it's like picture as a bridge and then you talk the same language in the end so now the child talks the teacher talks the child uses the teacher's words you have a conversation right that's the way it goes and you have to remember that also in digital you, it doesn't go the consultant talks because <laughs> then the client won't talk back to you you have to listen what does the client say say if, if you can add some words to it so they get, you know, enlightened and then, you know, go on like that, you know, in the same way. It is about language, about knowing the words you're talking about. I was so happy that I had a client where I went out there and I talked to him, heard about his problems. And then I added some words to it. I said something like, you want more peak flexibility. You want some blah, blah, blah. And we talked on. And then 15 minutes later, he said, listen, I want that. I want the peak flexibility. I don't want, and he used the words I said, right? Yeah. So I was like, oh, success. Yeah, no, no, that, that's definitely a success. I gave him words, right? It's a, it's a, and it's like a reverse Babylon. That's what we need to do. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm glad you you mentioned this because this happens uh, so often in the consulting area that the, the best skill that that can serve you is listening. <laughs> don't pitch. That's why you know. Don't pitch tech. You can pitch overall ideas about how to run your businesses and your capabilities. That that's easier to understand. But don't don't pitch technology because you're really talking from from your own little, uh, you know, ivory tower. You're just basically standing in the ivory tower, just uh, yelling out over the country and no one is even listening to what you're saying. Yeah, what you're saying, exactly. Uh, I like that, exactly. So, so uh, you, th there was a very interesting, you know, uh, licensing model that you talked about uh, in your previous podcast uh, at Formulated. Uh, and that had that you, you kind of, while being at ISS, you kind of struck a contract uh, for your RPA project where you offloaded the development to the maybe vendor and you you kind of, you know, so talk to me about that. That sounded really interesting to me. Yeah, well, basically what we what we, what we said was we treated the, uh, the RPA as every other IG thing saying that you have to have an operations plan for it, uh, most of all. Um, a, lot of, a lot of RPA at that time. I think still to some extent, and we don't do that, but it's still focusing on how can we implement something that works, right? Just building the thing, the consultancy work, the development work. So the uh, the no strings attached work basically for consultancy, right? We just, we coded this, goodbye, right? So what we did instead was saying that, okay, to make sure that we can actually scale and make sure that the, you know, a good bot is a working bot, um, as uh, as uh, Fatmir from DXC used to say to me. He, he DXC was the one who we um, we uh, entered 
the market with. Because uh, we agreed on that, that it was about making sure that the, the processes we built kept on working. So I changed the mindset of our tender when we asked for uh, for providers from being focusing on development efforts and just getting the first 10 bots, which was the initial thought that they wanted to do at ISS before I came in. And I changed it to saying that, listen, we need to make sure that we have someone who can maintain it. And we need to make sure we have a framework uh, that we build on so that it is maintainable by this vendor. This vendor that we choose for maintenance operations, or we call, we call it runtime management, will be uh, a trusted one. So they'll have access to, you know, be in our uh, VPN and everything. We trust them. They they will uh, will have SLAs and all these things right with them. So they will be a trusted vendor that is the only one able to operate our RPA processes globally. But for what we could call development, development is basically based on sprints, right? So for sprints, you could have anyone do it, just as long as they adhere to at any time the same tool and the same framework. So they have to build in the documents, the PDDs, the SDDs, what we call the operation handbooks and stuff like that. They have to fill those out and then put it through the gate to operations. So we had a you know, gatekeeping procedure in that, where a lot of our discussions in the tender was actually around gatekeeping. How should that be performed? What if they reject it? How do we go back and forth and so on? Because I, I really needed the vendor to say, okay, we take it over. You take some responsibility for this. This is what we want. I want to buy this. I want to buy an operations manager. That's what I want, right? So... It's like saying, uh, to some extent, it's like uh, the same ISS did in, in their field, facility management. They don't build the facility, but they manage the facility when you have it already. And I have this is the first time I thought about that. But to some extent, this was actually a brilliant, brilliant restructuring because it was very much in the vein of what ISS was all about, you know, maintaining the things. That's what we asked for from our vendor. So, uh, and I think actually uh, that structure is the only way to go on a large scale with RPA. If you don't outsource it, you need to make sure you build this maintenance capability. And that's a cost you need to accept will be there. Because I've seen too many, seen too many uh, setups for automation where it's like uh, five guys sitting there and then, and then they don't build anything new because they're they just constantly maintaining the few things they already built, right? I guess, uh, yeah, that, that makes sense. And uh, you back then you were working with Blue Prism, I guess. No, we worked with uh, Automation Anywhere. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was basically, I chose it based on how, I, I had a demo from both Blue Prism, uh, UiPath, and Automation Anywhere, uh, where they had to to build the process I defined in front of them, good consultants, and also pricing and everything came in as well. Uh, so I defined a process, they had to build it, I knew it could be automated. And then I saw the, kind of how easy he built it, and how logically it was, and how, you know, how, it was basically, made very simple. I said the big three tools, they have almost the same capabilities. So that was a base assumption. Then just wanted to know which one was easier to work. Funny thing is that the um, the Blue Prism guy used 40 minutes and he built a super cool process and was also you know checking if everything was open and reopening it and everything. He was really a beast. He was really awesome. Uh, the uh, the uh, Automation Anywhere guy built it in 20 minutes. It worked. That's it. The UiPath guy spent 40 minutes and it didn't work. <laughs> Anyway, this was a guy who was actually a consultant from UiPath. So, I guess you, uh, <laughs> there, there must have been some pressure, you know, he might have been feeling. No, no, it was actually very simple. Everyone was like, yeah, yeah, I know that well, but he, he overcomplicated himself a little bit. By, you know, anyway, anyway, we're not going to talk about that. I don't want to talk about, you know, I don't talk about software anymore in this. I hated that discussion. So I, 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 I do like this point, but I think uh, we can talk about the general thing. Like, so, so the decision criteria then became to, you know, 
what's easy to use and what's easy to maintain. Yeah, but that was at that time, right? I had to make a quick decision on tool because that was not the point. The point was the maintenance tender. So I, I made a pretty quick discussion, you know, decision on tool based on this and some pricing. And then I said, no more discussion. We move on. We need to get to the maintenance because that's the important thing. The tool is just the tool. You know, you don't go around discussing hammers all the time. I know the market is doing that on LinkedIn and everything, but really it's uninteresting to talk about hammers. It's interesting to talk about what you're building with the hammer and what, what you need to use it for. And if you look at the big three at that time, Blue Prism Automation, Anyway, UI Path, well, they could automate processes. That was the point, right? So that's why, I, would I do the same today? No, I don't think so. No, but at that time, it was just, I had to make some something that, that told me that I could make a, take a reflective choice on what tool I wanted to use, because I had to make a tool, tool choice, right? So basically, that was, that was the reasoning no, no. behind I, it. I think the, the biggest takeaway that you, you yourself mentioned was like, Having three things for a business case, whenever, what are you doing? Like a way of thinking about it, a way of working with it, a way of executing it. And that's a brilliant framework, I guess. I, I really, you know, uh, we talked about um, earlier, we talked about uh, complexity, right? Not, not, not saying the things that are complex are easy, right? And I remember the reason that we started uh, discussing this part and you invited me to it once that you read my predictions for uh, for next year. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's just let's just go through them. Like uh, I, I see you, <laughs> you you have some good stuff. I just want to mention one of them because we uh, I think I don't know if we are running out of time. I don't, you decide that. Sergio. Yeah. So so what which one would you like to pick up? That's the one that no one actually mentioned in the comments afterwards, but I really love that and it, it fits very much with this one. It's number five, right? Where I say that the EU adopts low law as a principle, right? Where I say that um, we were super inspired by the democratization in IT and decided to get a more democratic flavor by introducing the same principles in EU law, says von der Leyen. The Charter of Fundamental Rights is the first to be rewritten and now only consists of two lines, don't take shit and don't be a prick. Assuming these two operates on top of pre-built common frameworks understood by everyone and developed over centuries. So that's basically, you know, that's why I do it. I say that, okay, just imagine if we took something else that is like super complex and said, let's just make it simple, stupid, right? It's just simple. <laughs> don't take shit. Don't be a prick. We don't need anything more, right? That's it. Because, you know, it's built on also, you know, law is also built on common frameworks understood over centuries and pre-developed and everything doesn't make it easy at the same time. And that's the same, you know, just trying to, uh, and even though your microwave won't work, you know, it's still built on uh, really, really complex quantum mechanics, right? True, true. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I, I'd like to pick on, uh, you know, the, the, the where you mentioned the true definition of the citizen developer is finally delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai somewhere around Easter. So <laughs> that. <laughs> but, but that's because, because <laughs> we do hear we do hear all the time, you know, citizen developer, citizen developer, and some of the genuine, really big names are also taking that, and I respect that, but. Your point hit the nail. You know, the true definition of the citizen developer is finally delivered to Moses and Mount Sinai somewhere around East. God will finally give us the definition, right? <laughs> no, but it is, it, is, uh, it is because everyone's always talking about it, as you say, right? And I also, you know, I fell, I fell into the trap uh, last year where I said, that, okay, we need to add more citizen roles. And then one of my, one of my good friends uh, and, uh, and, you know, um, colleagues in this in automation, you know, Frank, uh, he, he wrote that, okay, yeah, sure. Like we didn't have enough uh, crappy concepts all the, all, already. Thank you for introducing some more. But I thought that, you know, I hate it. And I know a lot of people hate that. I've talked to multiple people that hate the word developer in it. So if you just say citizen architect, even citizen, you know, 
architect is something that enterprise architects would get annoyed at that. But if we go citizen evangelist, no one owns evangelist, right? It's just the crappy word everyone's using when they're like some kind of, you know, they're basically a different word for a key account manager, right? I'm an evangelist or marketing guy. But, but basically, citizen evangelist is, you know, you evangelize the tech and then you understand where it can be applied, what it can be used for. And then you go to the real developers or the, or the vendors, you know, the maintenance vendors and get it built so it works continuously. Because you don't just need ideas, you need things that keep working. And the thing with IT is that to keep it working, it is complex all the time. There's nothing in IT that is easy to just maintain. I haven't seen it yet, at least. Okay, so so here's here's one more thing, like uh, uh, because I, I've been part of discussions and I've, I can see things where, where it's coming from. But help us unpack: intelligent automation becomes hyper intelligent automation as automation finally enters phase where the most reliable automation is Gartner's auto generator for new automation conceptualizations. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so the bot that worked, you know, the, the good bot that kept on working was Gartner's auto generator that generates new concepts for intelligent automation, hyper automation. What do we have? We had the, so we had also... Uh, we have wide automation, we have deep automation, yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of There's that. tons of these, but also I just remember that there was... There was a third one, I, but I've, I've sort of forgotten. But there was like so many concepts on what, what is you know real automation. How do you know the new words for the scale when we are at scale? And 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 the envision is always like if you don't adopt full automation, you don't. And, and but you know full automation is, as I said earlier, IT is all about automation, right? So it's just about you just adopt full IT everywhere and. You naturally, we want to do that, but it's not that simple. It's not something you say, oh, haven't you adopted it yet? Oh, you know, I know that there's a concept <laughs> by Barnett and Barkin and those that, that define, they tell the automation in their book. Uh, so we can call that the definition. It helps a lot, at least. But but I think, you know, it's still something that is being just constantly diluted, the concept of it. And every time we introduce something new, you remember you had... Uh, you had your, uh, or just, you know, your, your core RPA, but then you suddenly had uh, attended and unattended RPA. Oh, and then you also had desktop RPA and you had, yeah. and people like, what, desktop robotic automation, what, what is it? Yeah, e exactly that. And then you realize, you know, okay, the only reason we suddenly had attended automation was because that's something Blue Prism couldn't do, but UiPath could do. That's why UiPath introduced this, this concept as a measure for choosing tool because then a new blue prism would lose and it actually succeeded in that even though whenever you ask people like okay why do i need attended automation in your call center i don't have any what else well in few don't don't you have a call sure and i don't have a call center have you looked you know there's only i've never heard anyone say anywhere else than call centers for attended automation and and then i haven't even seen i know they exist but I haven't seen yet a call center using attended automation because it just seems silly instead of having a low-code app, right? It just, <laughs> anyway, yeah. But I think that's what I uh, I sort of had to say today. And then, of course, you can read my other uh, my other predictions and wishes for no, next no, the, year. All of these predictions, you know, kind of... Uh, in, in a positive way, sarcastically pointed towards something ha happening in the market. And I think that's a wonderful way to put it. And yeah. because we can, we could be, you know, less, you know, tightened up by, you know, speaking up the things that are actually happening rather than just pretending that everything is fine. And yes, these hypes are all real. 
Well, I, I, you know, when you write satire, you always do it with a little bit of love, right? So, of course, I love it. I love the discussions, but you always, you, you, I love to do these. I look forward to doing these predictions because I did it last year as well. And I, I think it's really fun to make, you know, take a little bit of, of jokes on the market. And, <laughs> and, and you know what, Lassie, I, 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 I really don't want to say it on air. We might even cut it. But, you know... We have these predictions coming from all the big names. You, you, you know, you know, IDG or you know, we don't need to name them. There, there are all, always you know predictions. But I, I'd rather say in a ten years time, I see your predictions, you know, <laughs> being more selling than those predictions because those predictions never get fulfilled. No. I've seen that. No, 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 exactly. <laughs> I, I'm gonna keep on having. You no, know, my number eleven is gonna be at least the next couple of years. It's gonna be APA gets to scale finally. It was the same last year. I wrote the same APA gets to scale finally. And then this year, APA gets to scale finally. I'm going to keep on doing that because that's going to be my prediction. Now it will happen, right? And there's going to be something new Moses gets every year, I think. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, exactly. No, it's it's this wonderful way to put that thing. And I I think uh, that that's that's pretty good discussion that we had. And it, 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 it will give people some insight into like, it, there, there's not always the way to think about doing new projects, like there are always new projects out there that you can go and, you know, create great value from, but your your thinking needs to be right. That's what I, you know, get from your, uh, you know. You just have to start with basics, right? Digital data, that's, that's at the core of everything. Do we have it? Can we generate it? Maybe we should do that instead of automating the, the, the small pieces that we have. Maybe we should fix the data input instead and then automate when we have it. Or, you know, just think, just think a little bit more holistically. Don't think tool-wise think digital wise right so to conclude our discussion as a practitioner like you 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 did two good roles like one in iss and now in baker tilly what advice would you give to you know platforms like us platforms like low code no code platforms or whatever you call them what advice do you have for them you know to to put some sanity out there like how do they approach uh, presenting themselves well, I, th I think that it is about understanding where they fit in, in, in the data flow and then making a pitch very, very clearly on that. And then I think also, uh, to some extent, understanding that, uh, for me at least, uh, pricing is, is important, right? And, and I, I get that, you know, that we're always pitching pricing to the CFO and he likes to know exactly what his cost will be. But from an IT perspective, I like the consumption based even more. So, you know, what's your cost? And then put... 50% or 100% on top of that and give that cost to me. I don't like, you know, especially coming from SMB market that you always have to pay, you know, big bucks to start off and buy the customer service manager. I like to have things available, uh, capabilities available, especially now that we're in a cloud era where you, you basically scale up infrastructure easily and it's, it's readily available everywhere. I think that's something that needs in hype tech to reflect on pricing to make it, you know, just pay as you go. I think that's something that's needed. And that's I think that's where, and, and this, now we get into market talk, but I think you're going to feel a lot of these vendors in vanilla is going to feel a lot of pressure from Microsoft on that. Uh, and also, you know, from from um, from Salesforce and, and, and SAP and whatever, they're all adding to their capability stacks on a pay-as-you-go when you already have their tools. So I think that's, that's something you need, really need to be aware of, that, that's, that, that will be a demand from, from cloud. So 
I think that's a that's a great point, and I can I can you know vouch for that because I do hear that in our internal discussions and the, the industry peers that I listen, that's a critical factor right now. You know, pricing and pricing it the right way. Yeah, you know, if you I hear that the big some of the big RPA houses are really having trouble after Microsoft came up with the way they're doing RPA now in Power Automate is to so get people to buy one hundred thousand euro uh, enterprise packages up front. Why? Why should we do that when we can just try it out for 1,000 euros and see if it works, right? Great. That's that's cool. No, I think, uh, Jesse, uh, Lassie, thank you for your time. And it was really awesome talking to you in person. Uh, I've been watching you and I'll be watching you. You know, you, you make a lot of sense and uh, you kind of point to the things that are not said, you know, generally. <laughs> I, try, I try my Keep best. Keep doing that. <laughs> I try my best uh, to, to, to tell the truth. It's much more fun, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you, Chajil. Right. Thank you for your time.